It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. We're continuing our Simply the Savior series. And as we do that, as we've been in the parables of Jesus these last six weeks or so, hard to believe, but we're already approaching our 50th study in this particular series. God's been good to us this last year. Amen? Tonight we come to a one of those parables that when you first glance at it, you kind of miss a few of the details, but it is so important to us in our culture and in our American way of life and specifically in our Southern California way of life. And very often people kind of miss the basic context of this particular parable because it doesn't immediately jump out at you until you sit there and you think, What's Jesus trying to communicate? Remember, these are earthly stories with heavenly meaning. And so Jesus isn't simply trying to communicate just a story about, you know, some almond farmer from the Central Valley. For those of you that don't know, if you travel up the Central Valley of California, you get on the 5 or the 99, you head north, you know, that area that's basically just over the grapevine all the way until you get to Sacramento, uh, is some of the richest farmland in the world. And in fact, it's America's breadbasket for the most part. The vast majority of our fruits and vegetables here in the United States come from that area of the world. And a lot of those almond farmers, you would think, you know, almonds, you know, you get your little blue diamond, you know, hickory smoked ones, you know what I mean? Those guys that grow those almonds are pretty wealthy. A lot of of millionaires up there that have been tilling dirt. The guy in our story tonight is one of those rich farmers. One of those guys that's done very well for himself. He's made a life out of tilling the soil. And he, he pictures for us here in Luke chapter 12, we'll pick up in verse 13 in a moment, kind of the dangers of wanting more and more and more and more and more. And that's one of the great dangers of our country. We have become so used to having so much <clears throat> that when we simply have what we need, it's almost as if somehow we've failed or the Lord hasn't been good to us. And so tonight, the parable of the rich fool, or as I like to call it, confronting cult covetousness. This is a picture for us in our culture of the danger of wanting things that we don't have, or wanting more of what we do have than we really need. So would you pray with me tonight? Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your word, Lord, as you have spoken to us so richly. In these parables that Jesus told, as people came to him and asked him specific questions, that's going to happen in our passage tonight. Pray that you would speak to us as you would uh, allow us your, your presence in this place, God, as your people, as your children. Take your word and cause us to be strengthened as we hear it. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people all said, Amen. <clears throat> Before anybody gets the wrong message, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. Amen? It's okay to have things. It's actually okay to have nice things. It's okay to actually have really nice things. The question is, what kind of attitude do you have 
about those things and what place do they take in your life. Therein lies the problem for us here in America. It is very often that those things in our lives take a place that God never intended for them to take. They take the place of our peace. They take the place of our comfort. They take the place of our security. They actually, quite frankly, in many people's lives, take the place of God himself. And so that is the warning that's going to come from this passage of Scripture tonight. There's one message that comes up even a, a jillion times in our, our country. It's the, the accumulation of things is somehow uh, a goal for each of us, that we need to have more. You can see billboards as you drive down the freeway. It is just insane how your mind is bombarded. Amen? <clears throat> you can see it in the malls. You can see it in the storefronts. You can see it wherever you go. Kind of were watching television a, a year or so ago, and we just kind of decided that we would actually, you know, we kind of did the TiVo thing. We digitally record this program. And then you can fast forward through the commercials, you know. Anybody else do that? We were sitting there watching. Now, I'll tell you a little secret. I, I like Hawaii Five O because I like Hawaii. <clears throat> so I watched this program. The program's kind of mediocre, but the scenery's great. So we're watching Hawaii Five O, and I'm sitting there. I'm going, "Honey, do you do you really think that there's, you know, that there's more commercial than there is show?" And so we actually started taping and and timing the amount of uh, amount of commercials in one block. There were 14 commercials in a row. And we figured out that there was actually a little less, in an hour program, there was a little less than a half hour of actual show. The rest of it was commercial. And it was everything. And it was, you know, it's like the super mega size of every sandwich. It's like, you know, if you spend $100,000 on these jeans, they'll make you look skinny. You know, if you wear this cologne, somehow, you know, if, if you happen to be a guy and you're unmarried, you know, the girls will just flock to you and you'll immediately become marriageable. If you drink this kind of beer, that somehow you'll get intelligent. Now, there's a whopper for you. You know, it's just crazy the amount of things that are thrust at us and we don't even know it. It's like, we need this, we need that. You get it if you're on the internet, your inbox is filled with. I don't even know how many, you know, Breitling Orbiter watches I can get from China if I just go online. I, I, I just look at these things, you, the catchy radio jingles. and the, you, you remember these silly songs from throughout your life of all these products that have been stuck in your head. And really to that end... It's kind of about a, a carrot that doesn't deliver. It's the danger. You know, we, we, we often use that metaphor. We kind of talk, you know, that, you know, it's like a, it's like a carrot on a stick. It's exactly that. That's us. It's like the, the thing that happens, though, with this particular metaphor is every time the donkey moves, the carrot moves. Amen. You know, that's the problem with this particular metaphor. When you look at it, it's like, well, okay, if he just, you know, walked a little fast. No, he'll never get that carrot. Material things, wealth, the things that money can buy, are that proverbial moving carrot. 
They're constantly shifting. It doesn't matter how many steps forward you take. You are never getting what the enemy promises through the accumulation of stuff. It just simply can't deliver. It's incapable in that sense of delivering what it promises. Remember good old H. Ross Perot. He was talking about this very thing. He was interviewed in Fortune magazine. And he quotes a comment that he'd made some years before. But he says, guys, just remember, if you get real lucky, if you make a lot of money and you go out and buy a lot of stuff, it's going to break. If you buy the biggest, the fanciest mansion in the world, it has air conditioning, it's got a pool, just think of all the pumps that could go out. If you go to a yacht basin, any place in the world, nobody's smiling, and I'll tell you why. Something broke that day. Generator's out, the microwave doesn't work. Things just don't mean happiness. That's from a billionaire, by the way. The truth is, stuff does not equal happiness. It never has, it never will. If you're not already content, if you're not already happy, then the accumulation of stuff will just make you more of what you already are. And God knows that. Jesus is going to teach that lesson. But Satan himself loves the love of stuff. Because I don't think there's anything that distracts people from what God wants to do in their life more than the accumulation of things. Traveling on that donkey road after the carrot. And I don't say that because it's wrong to have a nice car or it's wrong to have a nice house or have a great business or or even have wealth for that matter. But if that replaces God in your life, then you're in deep trouble. And furthermore, the searching after those things can cause you untold grief. And it is to that end that we pick up in Luke chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 13. And Jesus is going to now instruct us about covetousness, wanting things. Ultimately, he says you're going to have less, less time with God, less time with each other. Verse 13, And then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Isn't that kind of a weird way to start a parable, isn't it? But this was normal. Remember Jesus, this is Jewish culture. Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's a traveling rabbi. He's wandering around. He's become known for, for his wisdom. And so it is very normal that someone would take a religious ruler, because remember, this is, this is how the Jewish world worked. If you wanted an answer to something, you went to the town rabbi. You went to someone who would offer you godly, sage advice uh, about what to do with pretty much anything in life, because the Old Testament law spoke to almost every area of life that there was. And so here comes this guy, asks this question out of the blue. Jesus is going to answer him in verse 14. Man? See, we thought that was surf lingo. Man? Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Now, it appears that the way this question is asked, it's phrased as though this person who's asked it does not know the Lord. And so now Jesus is going going to illustrate exactly what he's talking about as he speaks a seemingly harsh thing, you know, who made me your judge? 
It wasn't that Jesus didn't care about his situation. It was that the man didn't care about his situation. He was asking the wrong question. Anybody in here ever asked the wrong question? You, you, you kind of get going on your own thought process, and, and all of a sudden you just kind of blurt it out. What you really mean is, my brother's getting a bigger piece of the pie. You know, Mom promised me the money, and I'm not getting what I want, so can you tell him he's being mad? You see, that's the real question. The real question is here, tell my brother to give me what is mine. And Jesus knows it. Sometimes we we ask questions hoping that we'll get an answer that pleases us. And Jesus is now going to tell this guy through this parable. And he says in verse 15, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Now, why would he say that in light of that question? Because what I just told you is true. Because the guy really wasn't looking for Jesus to help him divide the the family inheritance. He was saying, what I've been offered isn't what I want. You need to tell him to do what I want. The man's problem was covetousness. He wanted something that apparently he was not going to get. For one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things he possesses. He uses a unique word there for life. And it basically means the, the sum and the total of all that you are. Not just your possessions, but literally the soul of the person, one's life. It would include all your possessions. It would include the things that we would call, you know, our home and our cars and all those kind of things. That would all be factored into that. But it's as if it were all wrapped up into a single whole. And it's just like, your life doesn't consist of the abundance of things. In other words, it's not what defines you. It's not what should make you. It shouldn't be your happiness. It shouldn't be your contentment. You shouldn't even, basically, Jesus is saying, you shouldn't really even have this problem. The fact that you're asking the question shows that there's a condition of your heart. And so he says, beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them. So you talk about a setup. The guy asked a question about an inheritance. Jesus said, I'm really not going to dignify that with the answer because that's the wrong question. And then he says, you need to be really careful because the actual problem is covetousness. Now he's going to illustrate it. And he spoke this parable to them. Saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And so as it is today, so it was then. Sometimes people had large plots of land. Sometimes they were leased from nearby uh, people. Sometimes they were their own land. But this land that was controlled by this particular farmer made him rich. He was really good at it. Maybe he was one of those guys like the almond farmers there in the Central Valley. He had done very well for himself. And he thought to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no more room to store my crops? And you're probably going, right, well, I'd like to have that problem. You're probably thinking to yourself, I should be so fortunate. 
But be very careful when you say that, when you think that. It's actually speaking to the heart of this issue. And we all respond at times like that. Notice what Jesus says. And so he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, this guy has either you know, got some type of a mental problem or he's really narcissistic. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Can you see God has no place in this guy's life? I don't need to walk by faith. I don't need to trust God. I've got so many things. I, I can buy my way out of anything. Matter of fact, I can purchase happiness. And there are people who believe that that's exactly what will happen if you just gain enough wealth, you build up enough of a portfolio, you, you get enough stuff going on for you in a physical sense, your life's just going to be smooth sailing. Can I tell you from practical first-hand experience, that is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. And in fact, some of the most miserable people that I have ever met, dealt with, worked with in my entire life have all had more money than they knew what to do with. Almost without exception. It takes a very special person to have wealth and contentment. And you see, if you're covetous, you really can't say that you're content. And contentment is the issue for us as the body of Christ with regard to stuff and things. And God said to him, fool, Raka, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? Underline that. You see, a lot of people give their entire life to the accumulation of stuff, and they don't even know that tomorrow they're going to be in a head-on accident. They don't know that tomorrow all that wonderful eating at, you know, really nice restaurants and extremely rich food has thrown their cholesterol to about 650. And they're going to blow a heart valve. They don't know that they were genetically disposed at birth to some form of cancer. They haven't got any idea. Maybe they're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and some dreadful accident will overcome them. But God does know that. And so all of that effort and all of that time that was put into the accumulation of wealth now actually gets handed over to somebody else because you don't get to take it with you. It all stays here. That's why it has to be in the right place in your life. So is he who lays up treasure for himself. And notice this, is not rich towards God. And so make sure that you, you get this point. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to have wealth. He's saying it's wrong to have wealth and not be rich towards God. He's saying it's wrong to have a massive amount of wealth and not have that wealth in the right place in your life. He's not saying it's bad to be wealthy. He's saying it's bad to have wealth and spoil yourself. It's bad to be in a place to where that wealth becomes God. That's a tough thing for us in our world. Jesus says, basically, beware of covetousness. 
And it, unfortunately, is an American sickness. Materialism, the thing that Jesus is addressing here. Actually, as Jesus unfolds the story, it was normal, it was usual, it was the right thing for rabbis to settle these types of legal matters or disputes. And Jesus didn't give an answer because he knew that the question asked wasn't the question that needed to be asked. These guys were both greedy. Both of the two sons who were looking for their part of the settlement were asking the wrong question. Greed was their motivation. Covetousness had had crept in, and and the real issue was a heart issue. There was a problem with their hearts. It wasn't a problem with how much was in their bank account. There was a problem with the lack of a love for God that would then govern all that stuff correctly so it had its right place. And if you talk to people who do have means, have some wealth, and they love the Lord, you'll find something out. They couldn't care less about that wealth. It's just something that God's given them, and they use it for His glory, and very often they're engaged in all kinds of wonderful things, and you never know who they are. They're not running around like the Pharisees with a trumpet blowing before them as they do their giving. But you'd be shocked if you realized exactly how much of the world uh, and, and the work that's done in the world by the church is done by wealthy Christians who just know that God's given them that wealth to, to, bless, to bless His people, to bless those who have need, to, to be used for His glory. And they, they really don't care about the next thing. Sometimes they're driving the ugliest cars in the parking lot. Sometimes they live in the smallest house that you could possibly imagine. I've met them, I've talked to them, I've been amazed at their steadfastness and just realizing that God's good, He's given me more than I need, and I want to keep it in perspective. This quest for things that Jesus is talking about here, Jesus doesn't deny that we have you know, certain needs. He's making that actually quite clear. There in Matthew 6, you remember he actually said, therefore don't worry what we'll eat or drink eat after these, the Gentiles seek these things. But he says, your heavenly Father already knows what you have need of. So the Lord recognizes that we have needs. Our problem is much like a, a list that I read a couple of years ago in U.S. News and World Report. And in that report, which I'm kind of sad because you can hardly get magazines that are any good anymore, the paper kind, I actually like them. But I read the online version of this, and they, they had an article, and it was entitled, The Ten Things That We Can't Do Without. The Ten Things That We Can't Do Without. This is a response. There were over 10,000 people that were interviewed in this, in this poll, and they were asked, give us the ten things that you absolutely can't live without. Here they are in order. Number one, portable computers. They might actually have to talk to people at Starbucks if they didn't have that. High-speed Internet access was number two. You know, you don't want to get your spam slow. You want to make sure you can get that really fast. Smartphones. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a smartphone. The smartphone is smarter than I am. I don't really like that. Higher education. And again, please don't take me wrong here. I don't mean to disrespect higher education, nor those who are engaged in it, people who are in college right now seeking a higher education. But there's a whole bunch of people who have massive amounts of debt 
that have bachelor's and master's degrees that are working at Starbucks because higher education isn't the answer for everybody. It's purported by our government to be the answer to everything. And in fact, we should pay all kinds of tax money to make sure everybody gets a a higher education. Frankly, what I believe we ought to do and what Jesus actually promoted was what we'd call vocational training. Train people to actually do jobs. Give them the skills necessary to compete in the workforce. Don't teach them, you know, underwater basket weaving and kinesiology. That's another way of saying I I majored in P.E. Higher education was number four. Number five was movies. Of all things, in the entire, you, you could answer anything. Movies. Now, what is it, like ninety nine ninety five to go to the theater now? If you want a Coke, it's two fifty. And I'm not talking cents, I'm talking dollars. It's like it's nuts. Kind of went over to AMC and we're, we're going to go watch a movie. And she said, that'll be thirty seven fifty. I said, <laughs> You should be able to go get a double feature for 50 cents and still have the money to get popcorn. Just gives you an idea how old I am. The sixth thing, TV. We were over in Howard's Appliances. I didn't even know that you could get an eight-foot wide TV for your living room. But I'm looking at it. There's a dude actually looking at that thing like he was going to buy it. I don't need my sewer pipe that big. Sorry, just saying. And I sure don't need it in 4K HD. Number seven was music downloads. Now, I, I grew up in the day and time where you actually went out and bought vinyl. And we, we owned record players. I actually had, and I had an eight track in my 65 Mustang. And then the whole back seat was dedicated to eight tracks. But now it's like you, you want a song, you go on iTunes and for, you know, you can download it for a buck or whatever. But people can't do without music downloads. Number eight is pets. Can I give you a little secret here? Has anyone heard a home? Food? Clothes? Top, thing, top ten things you can't do without. Not mention, one mention of anything that actually, not even a car is in here. Pets. You want a little test sometime? Do a YouTube search for kitties. You're going to come up with like 200,000 videos of kitties. You know, kittens doing the kittens dancing, kittens shake, you know. <laughs> kittens doing everything. It's like, are you kidding me? These folks have way too much time on their hands. Number nine was booze. Alcohol. Now we can, of course, add pot to that, too. I don't want to deprive anybody of being able to rack their brain. Now, the only one in the whole list that I actually thought was was probably true was coffee. Number ten, Christian crack. Because you take coffee out of America and, like, there's going to be nobody at work on Monday. 
Those are the top ten things. Not housing, not clothes, not cars, not food, not medical care. TVs, alcohol, movies, music downloads, smartphones. The things that you couldn't do without. I was stunned. It gives you an idea how twisted our minds have gotten about stuff, about things. We're addicted to it. It was an interesting story that was at the bottom of that story, and it was talking about plastic surgery and uh, procedures to keep one youthful, being kind of like right below those ten things. I think it was number 12. It was like wrinkle cream or something, you know? It's like, I smear on wrinkle cream, I disappear. It's just like, it's gone. You can imagine. I mean, we're, we're sitting here thinking, and you know why that is. And let me, let me be honest here. In a lot of cases, the reason we're so concerned about that particular thing is we're trying to stay youthful, not, not for our current spouse, but for spouse number three or five or eight or whatever. It's like that's, we actually treat our loved ones like they are also things to be owned and possessed. People are constantly looking for a new one of those as well. That's tragic. And it's certainly not God's plan. You see, Jesus was saying, you know, look, the problem's your heart. It's not the stuff. It's what you think about the stuff. It's the place that it holds in your life. We've got to have some real strong conviction on these areas as Christians in our world. I'm going to share some things with you tonight. And, I, and, and I, again, I just want you to take it in a little bit. Because we get caught up as believers sometimes in the, in the enemy's trap in this, this world. And notice a couple of stats here, and they're from the World Bank. I'm going to give you a, a website, and I'm going to ask you to go to it maybe tomorrow or tonight or whatever when you get home. But if you look up the World Bank and you just kind of look at the world as it is today, now think of this. $10,000 a year is, is like 26 hours, 27 hours a week at $10 an hour. That's all it is. That's all it is. That, that's basically if you work at McDonald's part-time, you make about $10,000 a year. You don't even have to work full-time. That would put you in the 84th percentile of the entire world in annual income. 84th percentile. If you make $50,000 a year or more, you are in the top 1% of the entire world in earning capacity. Top 1%, entire world. You can kind of see how when people look at us here in the United States and look at the church and they say, you know, what are you talking about? Now, granted, you know, I know, we know, it's more expensive to live in Southern California than it is, especially in the L.A. Basin, than it is most places in the entire world. So it does cost a lot more to live here, certainly more than it would cost somebody to have a hut, you know, in, in, in some third world country. $10,000 there would be a fortune. But the point I'm trying to make is, is we, we've gotten locked in on what it actually means to have our needs met. What, it, what did Jesus say when he says, 
my Father in heaven knows what you have need of, and he will make sure you have that. You see, we've kind of taken and gone from needs to wants. And so we start desiring things. If you go, and you can, you can write this down if you want, it's just, it's just com. little forward slash wealth, but if you just go to Global Rich List, it's going to ask you for three things. Your home equity, the value of your possessions, and the value of your investments. And you can put those three numbers in, and it is going to blow your mind where you would fall. You can put the region that you want to, you know, be associated with. You can just put in USA. And you type that in. Let me, let me, give, you a, let me give you a little hint. For us here in the United States, if you have $10,000 in assets... You are in the top 30% of all people in wealth in the entire world. That's $10,000. So if you have a car, you got a couple grand in the bank, and, and, and you're able to pay your bills on time, you're in the top 30% of all people wealth-wise in the world. Not just wages, actual wealth. If, if that number goes to around 150,000, you're going to be in the top 10% of the entire world's wealth. So you know why Jesus was talking about these things? Because he knew that, you know, people would struggle with wealth and the accumulation of it and really putting it in the wrong perspective uh, in our lives. And so Jesus tells this parable and he begins by giving us a couple things. And they're these. How would you respond to, to this farmer's dilemma? There's a man who had a problem. And as I said, it's a problem that most of us in this room would probably like to have. But in, in saying that you'd like to have it, you're kind of throwing yourself into the fray a little bit here. He had too much wealth. And, and as you think about that dilemma, can you imagine... I mean, think about it for a second. Put yourself in that position. You know, you, you have some nice, well-paying job, and now you find that you don't have enough places to put all your stuff. And so, well, I'm going to build a bigger house. Or I'm going to, you know, get a bigger safety deposit box. I'm going to do something. i got too much gold in my safety deposit box. You know, when you reach that level, you might kind of want to wonder, you know, am I paying my people enough? Am I giving enough to, to missions around the world? Am I doing things with this that is actually beneficial for the kingdom? Because we're Christians. We don't accumulate stuff just for the sake of having stuff. And again, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying if you've got an investment account or you've got a savings account, you've done something wrong. No, praise God, you're actually supposed to do that. Scripture is very clear that a man should take care of his own household because if you don't, you're actually worse than an unbeliever. So there's a great place for us to take care of the needs of our family. We're talking about excess here. And really the underlying issue was contentment. We're going to cover this passage in Philippians 4 uh, in probably a couple of months as we finish up uh, the book of Philippians. But it, it says there, beginning in verse 11, not that I speak with regard to need. Paul's speaking about his own life. He says, for I learned in whatever state I am to be content. There is the key. It's contentment. It's not how much you have. 
It's not how big the things are. It's not if your barns are big enough. It's are you content with whatever God allows in your life? And he goes on to describe that. He said, I, I know how to be abased. In other words, I, I know how to be in want. I know, what I, I know how to have need. We, we've gotten to the place to where we don't really do that very well. I know how to abound. In other words, have abundance. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned how to be both full and hungry, to both abound and to suffer need. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, in context, what, what he's really getting at is that contentment and, and seeing the hand of the Lord comes from just letting God be God. And if he gives us a bunch, praise the Lord. If we don't have as much as someone else, praise the Lord. We learn how to get along with what God has done in our lives. And there's a really good way to do a little bit of self-diagnosis. If you suddenly inherited a great deal of wealth, and if you want to see this in action in generally a negative way, have you ever noticed how many people who win the lottery are bankrupt within a year or so? You see, that's what happens when you don't have that in view. When you just get heaped on a bunch of resources, you don't have any place to store it, that, that it's going to do work for the king or the kingdom. And I'm not saying that everybody that's ever won the lottery, I'm not encouraging you to play the lottery either, so don't get that in your heads. But most people who do that are not trusting the Lord. That's why they're playing the lottery. That's why they're going down and spending their money on their tickets. It's a one-armed bandit that you can't see. They're, they're going in hopes that they are going to get something that they would not otherwise have and they're hoping it's going to be a whole bunch. And then all of a sudden, because they don't know how to manage that wealth, because all of a sudden they can fulfill all their wildest dreams, a vast majority of the time they end up in financial trouble because God never intended for them to have that kind of wealth. And boom, there it is. And it creates more problems. It's amazing how many relatives pop out of the woodwork. You know, your second and fourth cousin, ten times removed, now all of a sudden is your best friend in the entire world. There are perils to prosperity, to be sure. Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9 give us that. Two things I request of you. Solomon talking, don't deprive me before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Notice that, underline it. Neither one is great. Being rich has its difficulties. Poverty certainly has its difficulties. And we have too much of it in our country. Can you imagine if those who had thought about what they have and what they need and the relationship between those two things and then gave what they have away? And instead of amassing billions of dollars in fortunes, you know, I mean... I'm pretty sure that somebody could re live fairly comfortably for the rest of their life on a few hundred million dollars, don't you think? I'm pretty sure nobody needs tens of billions. And again, some people are very generous. But at the end of the day, for us as believers, you see that your brother has need, how can you harden your heart towards that person's need and say that the love of God actually dwells in you? It's what you do with what you have. Is being content with it. In the parable of the sower, we, we learned that, that wealth can actually choke out the word of God, can't it? 
Remember we saw that in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel? That seed that got choked out by the things of the world. And wealth can certainly be one of those things. It has its snares. It has its temptation. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, all the way through verse 10, but really in verse 8 it says, Having food and clothing and these things, be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. They do many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. And then he says the killer. And, and make sure that you quote this verse in its context and as it is written. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money is evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds. In other words, it leads to places that the lack of money doesn't go. It can get you into the kinds of trouble that poverty actually can't get you into. Poverty has its own set of problems, to be sure, and they are deep and pervasive. But they're not the same as wealth. Wealth can be a real stumbling block. As a matter of fact, people who are on the edge of it are usually in the most danger of it. And it says, for which some strayed from the faith in their greediness. Wealth is so attractive. And I would say, if there's a, there was a problem in my life, in my mid-20s, all the way to my early 30s, that was it. That was the thing. That, that would be the thing I could point to and say, you know what? That happened to me. I strayed from the faith. I didn't lose my faith, but I strayed. I wandered off into, into business. And that business got very profitable and very quickly. And all of a sudden, you're looking at all these things and go, well, I'll just buy myself a bigger boat. Get a bigger this or a bigger that or a better this or a better that or we'll do more of this or more of that. And before you know it, there's really not a whole lot of need that you have for the Lord in your life. And so you stray because of greediness, wanting more things. And they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I guarantee you that you can find people in your life who love the Lord who could tell you about the sorrows that they've been through because they have held things in the wrong place. Wealth can definitely give you a false sense of security. It can create, actually create temptation. You see, many people say that money doesn't satisfy and that's actually not true. Money does satisfy if you want to live at that level. If that's what you want to get your satisfaction from, then you will have that satisfaction. The problem is that satisfaction is temporary and it's conditional. And so when you don't have the wealth or you don't have the things, I'll give you a little inside secret. Wealthy people are some of the hardest people on the face of the earth to do work for. Because they cannot be made happy. Everything has to be just perfect. All the little details, you know, being in, in the construction industry and having clientele that were very, very wealthy. It was horrible. I mean, haggling over things. I remember getting in a helicopter and flying over a guy's ranch that we were building and, and he was looking down at the ponds that we had dug in the middle of his racetrack for his racehorses and one of the ducks wasn't perfectly aligned so that it wasn't like the mama duck with the baby ducks. And so when he flew over it in his helicopter, the pond wasn't going the right way. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, you got a mental issue. You can only see that from a helicopter. Well, when you think about the fact that he owned a company that made helicopters, it kind of made sense, I guess. But, but it was like, are you kidding me kind of things. And he was out of his mind. He literally had us fill it in. Redig it so that the duck's head was going with the rest of the duck's heads. Crazy. Got to be careful. How do you respond? Is always the the issue. You see, it it creates snares. It, it can put you in places you never thought you'd go. So, how about the decisions of the rich man? You know what? What would you do with those decisions? Some some of you are saying, "Wow, he was probably just shrewd. He was good at business. You know, he he was in the right place at the right time." We all we all think things like that. Save it, have it ready, ready for the future. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that in a general sense. Unless you're starting to trust the wealth instead of God. And as a Christian, there's a huge problem. There's a real difficulty. And so the farmer is just making decision after decision after decision based on the one bad decision. You see, Jesus cares about little things. You remember when he fed the, the 5,000, and remember what he told them to do with the fragments? He said, gather up all the pieces that remain. And he's kind of, you know, it may sound kind of crazy. He's kind of like, go scrape the stuff off of everybody's plates and we'll save that for later. We got, you know, we got a little midnight snack going on here or something. Jesus was frugal. He was thrifty. He was actually teaching the disciples something not only about God's wonderful and magnificent provision that God had done these things, but there was actually something left over and that something was valuable. How often do we look at the things that we have and we we live in a disposable culture. We throw away everything. When you travel around the world and you, you go to places where people live in abject poverty. Now, we have poverty here in the United States, and I want to freely acknowledge that. And it, it's, it's something that we as a, as a culture and a country must do better at. We must. We need to take care of our fellow man. But I've been to places that don't even, we don't have anything to compare it to. When you travel, you're going you're gonna to get to see this summer the Olympic Games in, in Rio de Janeiro. And they're going to show you the beautiful view from up on the top of Cristo de Redentor. They're, you're going to look from Christ the Redeemer statue down to the harbor, and you're going to see this beautiful picture, this city. You know, it sits on the edge. You'll see Ipanema Beach and all these wonderful places. You're going to go, man, that looks awesome. What they're not going to show you, what they will not show you is the city of God one of the largest favelas in the world. One and a half million people live there, primarily by digging through the trash and selling drugs. You see, when you, when you think about it, God cares about 
the little things. God cares about what we do with what we have because if we would take what we have and, and give it to those who have need, places like that might not even exist. There are several studies done by the World Health Organization that seem to indicate that the United States alone produces enough food. We throw away enough food in this country to feed most of Europe. It's not a production problem. It's what we do with the production. And we as Christians need to be really careful about that. Again, don't want to bum you out. You know, go enjoy your pizza. We'll join you over at Blaze. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, if you have a meal and you actually like it, there's something wrong with you. I'm simply saying that as you look at your life, you need to kind of keep it in perspective. Make sure that those things that we consider uh, as needs are actually needs and they're not just wants. And finally, how do you respond to the farmer's desires? Because, see, there's really the problem. He was saying, you know, ah, this is the life. I'll just build some bigger barns. I'll never have anything to worry about. I've got satisfaction, I've got success, I've got security. What more, you know, really, he's basically saying, what what more can I want? Well, if you're going to lose your soul, there's a lot more you could want. And it needs to have the right place in your life. You see, his wealth was absolutely not going to get him anywhere near the life that he thought he was going to get. And when he stepped out of this life and into the next, he was going to be really, really, really sorry about what was going on. And as a matter of fact, he didn't even know that he was going to not live very long. He he wasn't in that place where he thought, you know, hey, I've got another 20 years, 30 years. Probably many of you in here know know of someone or maybe someone in your family has retired, you know, and they've set themselves up and they're going to go through all these wonderful things and... You know, they've got pictures of the vacations they're going to take and all that kind of stuff, and along comes cancer and steals every last cent they've got. Or, or maybe just ill health and the things that they thought they were going to do, they, they end up unable to do. They, they can't do it. You see, when money has the wrong place, No matter what plans you have, they're not going to come out the way you think they are. And so Jesus finally responds to all this, and he tells us about the thing that the farmer didn't know. That was he was about to die. You see, wealth can be enjoyed and at the same time employed. You can have it and use it at the same time. Can be a, an honor certainly to the Lord. It can be used for His glory and for His praise. Uh, and as that passage there in First Timothy six says, you know we need to need to be careful because money can be the root of all kinds of evil. And pretty soon, uh, we we start trying to make it something that it can never be. It's never going to be your happiness. You know, I, I, Connie and I have talked about this many times. You know, we kind of think we were born the wrong time. We kind of wanted to be like the Waltons. You know, just build a house, and it's not quite big enough. You just build a little more house, and you have the kids and the grandkids, and everybody's running around the front yard just enjoying each other, and you're jarring up your own jam and growing your own veggies, and every once in a while you've got to eat, you know, Bessie or whatever, but... 
feel sorry for the cows, but you know, they taste good. But we kind of we forget that at times. We start freaking out over some of the craziest things. There's a website online and talking about <laughs> this particular aspect of it. It's actually the tribal wisdom of the Lakota Sioux. And those Native American people, you know, it's a lot of wisdom when you roam around the plains of the United States for probably a thousand years or more. And they have a saying, something doesn't work. They're referring to life in general, but the way we live life, the paradigm that we live by, they're saying is when you discover that you're riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. In other words, you kind of maybe want to think about what you're doing. Dead horse isn't going to go anywhere. Wealth is a dead horse for most people. It's not really going where you think it's going to go. And I went on to give a whole long list, and they're pretty hilarious. And it kind of reads like a government program, actually. You know, some people treat those things in their lives that are dead and they want to make them alive. They just get a stronger whip. Some people just change riders. They think if they put somebody new on it, somehow it's going to get going. Some people appoint a committee and study the dead horse to see if it can have some kind of life. You know, when you're seeking after things, when, when, you're, when you're looking at the, the wrong conclusion from the information that you have in front of us and you discover it's wrong it's a dead horse it's not going to run and reclassifying it as a living impaired horse is not going to help right it's just not it's still not going to work out for you in the end hiring outside contractors to ride the dead horse for you is not going to help harnessing several dead horses together you still got a dead horse It's not going to provide what you think it's going to provide. All the worry and care in the world, struggling over over something that God God could give you just like that is not going to help you. You see an exhaustive search for happiness in stuff is is like that. It's just a dead horse. It can't run. It can't get you where you want to go. And if you were a Plains Indian, you prized your horse. Your horse was your transportation for you, for your family. Very often it would bring along the supplies. Your teepee poles were lashed to it. You know, you, you ended up uh, very much attached to that horse. And if it's not going where you want it to go, you need to make sure that you're not trying to make it do something it can't do. And wealth very often is pushed to the edge of it just can't do what you're looking for. It can't make you happy. It can't provide you anything but temporary joy. And so Jesus simply reminds us through this parable, beware of covetousness. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And when you think on these things, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. When we looked at this a number of months ago, verse 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Amen? That's that's where we want to have our treasures. Where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is. Notice this. 
And this verse is often misquoted. It's reversed usually. Where your treasure is. In other words, where you have stored up your treasure. Where you have already placed your hope and your trust. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, you can tell a lot about your own life by where you invest your treasure. If your treasure is invested in you, if your treasure is simply attempting to get more treasure so you can do your things, you're investing your treasure here. And again, nothing wrong with having a nice house, nice cars, a bank account that's full of money. God bless you if you have that. He has blessed you. But you want to store up treasure in heaven. That comes from having the right perspective on money and not being covetous. Looking at stuff and hanging on to it lightly and loosely. Amen? It's just, it's all God's. Everything, you, if you think you own something, you don't. You don't. You don't own a thing. Everything on this earth is God's. You just get to borrow it for a while. He's being kind to us. We, we kind of, you know, we're stewards. That's the way the Bible uh, promotes us is, is, is having stuff. We just simply get to use God's stuff for a while while we're here, but it's still his stuff. And so we want to store up our treasure in heaven. The only thing that you can take up there are souls, other people. You don't get to take cars and boats and planes and things like that to heaven. That all stays here. And so Jesus is saying, invest in heavenly things. For where your heart is already, basically, is what he's saying. That's where you invest. That's where you put your time, your talent, and your treasure. So beware of covetousness. Amen?